Today on Blue 58, the Packers have a 60-year history with the Minnesota Vikings, and it's gotten pretty strange at times. Let's take a look at a few of the weirder moments in their long shared history. But first, does anybody have any idea what this NFL season is going to look like? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast to thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for another episode, and I am grateful that you are listening in because we've got a lot of fun stuff to talk about. I'm looking forward to our Packers-Vikings discussion here in a second at a fun piece for Acme Packing Company, but we'll get to that after we talk a little bit about what's coming up for the 2020 season. I do think there is going to be a 2020 NFL season. I have no idea what it's going to look like. And I don't think anybody else does either. If you're reading someone or listening to someone who says they have a definitive idea what this NFL season is going to look like, I think they're lying to you. Because I don't think anybody does. And I don't think anybody can. The way this entire pandemic situation has unfolded, things have changed rapidly. And if one thing has been certain throughout all of this, it's that we really don't have a long-term idea what things are going to look like or how this virus really affects things at all. It's, it's been astonishing how little we know about this. And that's been something uh, just in my life I've learned a lot about over the last year and a half or so. The medical world is a lot squishier on a lot of things than I think we've been led to believe. Having a baby really drove that home for me and my wife. Many times we would meet with nurses, midwives, doctors, and I would ask like, broad questions about, hey, what can we expect going into this particular situation? Because there's a lot of big milestones that you hit when you're having a kid. And most of the time, the answer would be something like, well, here's our best guess as as to what's going to happen, but we don't really know for sure. That's all you got? That's the best you got for me? You don't know for sure? My wife is about to have a really significant medical situation here and you're about to say or or all you can tell me is we'll just do our best okay well uh that's different that's not quite what i was expecting but it's pretty common that was the answer that we got to pretty much everything and i've thought about that a lot as we've gone through our situation with coronavirus because a lot of times you just don't know And a lot of times you're just dealing with your best guess. Take the situation with masks. Wear one, don't wear one, wear a mask. It's not a a big ask. But for a long time, the guidance was, no, you you probably don't need a mask. It, It doesn't spread through the air as much as we thought. Now that guidance has completely shifted. How do you plan a 256 game NFL regular season with millions of fans in the stands in 32, well, 30 different cities around the NFL. You got to count New York and Los Angeles, I guess, as, as one apiece. A bunch of different cities around the around the league, around the country. Coordinate a whole bunch of travel and keep everybody safe while you're doing that. Good luck. If if the best that you can do just for the virus itself is your your best guess, how does that work into an NFL season? 
I still believe that there's going to be a season this year, but I am becoming less confident. And again, I, I have no idea what it's going to look like. Up until the relatively recent past, though, I felt more confident because it seemed like there was at least unity at the NFL level. Everybody seemed to be somewhat on the same page. Lately, it seems like people are starting to break ranks a little bit. Mark Davis, the owner of the Las Vegas Raiders, got to be careful that we don't say Oakland, the Las Vegas Raiders is kind of leading the way here. There was recently a vote on a procedure or, or a policy about tarping off the first eight rows of seats and stadiums as a safety measure for players. Who knows how much that's going to work? Uh, but he was against it. The Raiders are moving into a new stadium, and he doesn't want to first cost himself a bunch of money because, obviously, money is going to drive a lot of these decisions. But secondly, the Raiders have a bunch of fans who've bought season tickets, and now they're being told, sorry, you're out of luck. In your premium seats in the first eight rows around the entire stadium, we got nothing for you here, and we can't move you to a different seat because there aren't any other seats, because they're all sold out. And he's mad, and I understand why he's mad, and I think he might have a point. Here's a few quotes, and you can read the full article in your show notes. It's from the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Davis has a bunch of good thoughts here. First quote, Unfortunately, a league that operated the entire offseason on the basis of equity, whether it be the draft or team facility access, has completely dropped the ball on uniform attendance procedures. We have potentially 32 different capacities and seating formations. Where is the equity in that? End quote. I think he's got a point. It's not as though every single NFL stadium is the same. They're not all just a big bowl like Lambeau Field. You've got different amounts of seats in those first eight rows. You've got different stadium configurations. And this policy is going to affect the 32 different teams differently. He goes on, quote, When Governor Steve Sisolak in the state of Nevada determined to be, or what they determined to be safe in the face of coronavirus after careful consideration, all abide by. And at the appropriate time, he, the governor, may determine that it isn't safe for 100% of the fans to attend. At that point, I have to make a decision. End quote. Again, different rules from state to state may affect different teams differently. Is the NFL going to make a blanket policy about, you know, we've got to be governed by the least um, open state here? Who knows? That would seem to be equitable, as Davis is getting at, but is that fair to the other teams? Say you're in a state where things have gone relatively well with the virus. Should you prevent fans from attending games there just because some other state didn't handle things so well? That's not equitable. So that's a big hurdle to clear. He continues, quote, you can keep players from the fans, but you can't keep players from the players. That could be our Achilles heel. Without some form of bubble, we may be asking for trouble. End quote. Here he's referring to the NBA style plan. I'm just putting everybody in one place and just trying to keep them isolated in this sort of bubble to keep people from getting the virus. That seems wholly unrealistic for the NFL because there's way more players on an NFL team than on an NBA team. Multiply that times 32 and you've got thousands of people, plus all the support staff for teams and so on and so forth, that you got to keep from um, getting up on top of each other and getting the virus 
where it's not supposed to be. That seems like a big problem. So just to, to recap this all, if Davis isn't on the same page with everybody else, how can you expect the other 31 owners or 30 owners plus Mark Murphy to get on the same page on other issues? There's more going on than meets the eye. There's more to it than that even. Pro Football Talk says this week that several different teams are considering same-day travel to and from games during the 2020 season. Quoting from the article, again linked in your show notes, a fairly lengthy quote here, quote, the planning for the 2020 NFL season includes a revolutionary and risky approach to traveling to road games. Per a league source, multiple teams intend to fly to and from road games on the day of the game. It's an idea that's been percolating for a while, something Peter King floated a couple of months ago, and it could be a reality. That said, there will surely be limitations. The 49ers play at the Jets in Week 2, and it won't be practical to fly across the country, play a game, and fly back. Weather also will be a factor, which could force a team to change plans at the 11th hour and scramble to find hotel rooms on very short notice. The way things are going, though, that may not be too hard to do. Then there's the possibility of an issue with the plane, which could delay kickoff by several hours or prevent the game from happening at all on the scheduled date. End quote. Read the full piece. Got some other good stuff in there. To me, though, this seems like a really bad idea. And as Florio kind of points out here, Mike Florio, it's a ton to ask from the players. Even if you're not going cross-country like the 49ers, even traveling at all on the road, on, on, a, on the day of a game for a road game, seems like a big, onerous ask for a team that's going to go through a very demanding game. And what does that do to the quality of the play on the field? It can't be good. It just seems like a bad idea. But it's another thing that we've got to think about as we're heading into this 2020 season. It kind of seems like nobody really knows what's going on. And giving voice to that particular perspective is Los Angeles Rams coach Sean McVay. Quote, there's such an influx of information that is ever-changing. It's a little bit mind-numbing when you get down to it. It's figuring out what is going to be the best way to operate and having the ability, the agility excuse me, to adjust. Is this crazy, coach? We're talking about some of this stuff, and we're playing football. We're going to social distance, but we play football. This is hard for me to understand. I don't get it. I really don't. End quote. Yeah, I think you're kind of there with a lot of us, Mr. McVeigh. A lot of us don't really get what's going on. And a lot of us don't really understand what the way forward is either. And I'm not trying to be doom and gloom here. I want there to be an NFL season as bad as anybody. I've sat down and I've thought a few times, what is this podcast going to look like if there's no NFL football this fall? Or if we're delayed into October or something like that? The answer is, I don't know. What do we do? I don't know. And to be fair, I think I don't know is a really fair answer here. Don't pretend to have one an answer if you don't have one. I sure don't. I don't know what the NFL should do. But to this point, or to until recently, it seems like the NFL has projected this idea of knowing what to do. Now the cracks, I think, are starting to show a little bit, and that's making me less confident about this NFL season. Though again, I still believe that there is going to be one. What is it going to look like? Who knows? Wrote an interesting piece, or I consider it an interesting piece, for Acme Packing Company this week. You can read the entire thing at acmepackingcompany.com. We are doing uh, a series on the Packers' rivalries in the NFC North and outside the NFC North, and I was assigned uh, to write a piece about their history with the Minnesota Vikings. 
Packers have a long and interesting history with the Vikings. Vikings didn't come around until 1960. That is much later than their other NFC North rivals, the Bears and the Dolphins. Or the Dolphins. The Bears and the Lions. I guess I was thinking about Florida because uh, Tampa Bay used to be in the NFC Central. Remember those days? Good old NFC Central. The Bears and the Lions, not the Dolphins, the Packers' other NFC North rivals. But the Packers and Vikings have had plenty of interesting moments over their 60 years together. Let's talk about a few of them. Decade by decade, as the piece goes, and I'll try not to give too much of it away because... You get uh, get some good stuff by reading it um, rather than just me talking about it. But starting in the 60s, the Vikings made things tough for the Packers. The Packers won 11 of their first 18 meetings. Uh, those were That was all the meetings they had in the 1960s. But the Packers did not have an easy go of it. Two of the Packers' fi- uh, wins were by five points or less. And in each of the Vikings' seven victories, uh, the Packers only broke 20 points once. Vikings played the Packers pretty tough right from the get-go. And it got even worse for the Packers in the 1970s. Vikings made four Super Bowl appearances in that decade. This was kind of their high-water mark as a franchise. But the Packers were not doing so hot in the 70s, you may have heard. In the Packers' 20 matchups with the Vikings, Packers just won just just four and broke the 20-point barrier only twice. However, the 70s did give us one of the most heroic and futile performances in Packers history. In 1978, in early November, Turdell Middleton carried 39 times for the Packers. He gained 110 yards and scored a touchdown, and it all went by the boards because that game ended in a 10-10 tie. You know the myth of Sisyphus, the guy who had to push the boulder up the hill again and again and again and again for all eternity? I don't know why, but that comes to mind when I think about Dale Middleton carrying the ball 39 times only to see the Packers and Vikings tie. Packers did surprisingly well against the Vikings in the 1980, 14-5 against the boys in purple. Not too bad. Swept the series in 1980, 84, 85, 87, and 88. Pretty solid. This decade also featured some of the more lopsided games in Packers and Vikings history. The Packers lost to the Vikings by scores of 42-7 and 32-6. But the Packers beat the Vikings bad a few times as well. To the tune of 45-17, 38-14, and 34-14. In that 45-17 win, uh, you may recall if you are an older Packers fan, that that game was tied at 17 at one point in the third quarter. The Packers went on to win 45-17. to Things really get weird and interesting in the 90s and 2000s, and the, the teens as well. In the 90s, the Packers were one of the best teams in the entire NFL, especially from 1992 on. But... They really couldn't handle the Vikings. Vikings actually took this series in the 90s, winning 12 of the 20 games the Packers played against the Vikings. And they did that for two big reasons, the Metrodome and and Randy Moss. Mike Holmgren didn't win his first game in the Metrodome until 1997. 
and the Packers only won twice in Minnesota in the entire decade. Let's try not to think about that too much. And things only got worse when Randy Moss arrived in 1998. You remember his first game against the Packers? Five catches, 190 yards, two touchdowns, touchdowns of 44 and 52 yards. Yeah, he was pretty good. Things turned around a little bit for the Packers in the 90s or in the early 2000s. They kicked things off with Antonio Freeman's He Did What Catch, as brilliantly called by Al Michaels, 26-20, the win in that Monday night football game. The Packers also had a pair of last-second 34-31 wins during the 2004 regular season, both of them on Ryan Longwell last-second field goals. However, this also brought us one of the most ignominious moments in the Packers-Vikings rivalry. After the 2003 season, the Packers faced the Vikings in the wild card round at Lambeau Field, and Randy Moss did what Randy Moss did so often, basically took the Packers apart, and committed a disgusting act after his second touchdown. I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek. really didn't bother me all that much at the time, and even less so now. Eh, as far as touchdown celebrations, it's pretty tame. You may not have remembered, but it was actually Brett Favre's final trip to the Metrodome as a member of the Packers that featured him breaking Dan Marino's touchdown pass record, career touchdown pass record. He threw his 421st career touchdown that day. And of course, you have to say that it was as a member of a Packer of the Packers that he made his last visit that season because just two years later, he would be taking up permanent residence in the Metrodome as the Minnesota Vikings starting quarterback. And those two games in 2009 have to be one of the low points as uh, as far as my Packers fandom as it relates to the Vikings. Living in Minnesota during that 2009 season was just awful. That was the first semester of my junior year, and that was a rough semester for a number of reasons. For instance, you remember the swine flu, H1N1? Yeah, I got that. That was a lot of fun. I don't know where it ranks compared to the coronavirus, uh, but I do remember at one time having the swine flu. I had a fever so high that I was delirious. I was walking around my dorm room having a very vivid dream that I was giving a brilliant speech to the Galactic Senate in Star Wars. I was killing it. I was doing a great job. I also kind of had the feeling that I was in a dream at the time, but I just went with it. Roommate never woke up. College is a weird time, man. But that was part of the 2009 season. Those two losses to the Vikings with Brett Favre as the quarterback going to college in Minnesota. Tough to watch. But in the 2010s, it gets better for the Packers. Packers hammered the Vikings in both of their 2010 matchups. That's a little bit strong. The first one, they just squeaked out. Brett Favre couldn't quite lead a comeback in what would turn out to be a 28-24 loss. Got a little bit of a help on a review there from the, from the officials, but hey, 
Let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. The Packers beat Brett Favre as a member of the Vikings at Lambeau Field, then hammered them in their second matchup. But overall, and I promised you some weird moments in Packers-Vikings history, let's talk about a couple. And there are a couple in this decade that we have to talk about. First, you remember Joe Webb starting a playoff game. Yes, it's true. After the 2012 season, one that featured the Packers losing to the Vikings in the the final week of the regular season, Christian Ponder was injured and could not go against the Vikings in that wildcard game at Lambeau Field, leaving Joe Webb to be the starting quarterback. And what a game it was for Joe Webb. Not really. I remember watching the build-up to that game Tony Dungy on Sunday Night Football presented a very good case why people should be concerned about Joe Webb if they happen to be Packers fans. And then one series into that game, it was very clear that the Packers did not need to be concerned about Joe Webb at all. We also had two Packers and Vikings ties in this decade. The first was in 2013. Aaron Rodgers out with a broken collarbone. Matt Flynn returns to help lead the Packers to a thrilling tie ball game against the Minnesota Vikings on a brutally cold Sunday. We also had a tie in the 2018 season. But we actually have to go back to 2017 to remember why that may have happened. So in 2017, you have Anthony Barr landing with his full body weight on Aaron Rodgers, breaking his collarbone, and that precipitated the body weight rule change, which came back to haunt the Packers in 2018. As you remember, it seemed like Clay Matthews was getting flagged for that each and every week. And in 2018, as Kirk Cousins throws what appears to be a game-sealing interception to Jair Alexander, Clay Matthews breaks through the line. Hits Kirk Cousins, tries to pull up, and unfortunately lands on him with his full body weight. He is flagged, and that game ultimately ends in a tie after the Vikings rally after that correctly officiated but still stupid call. Where does that leave us in Packers-Vikings history? Well, the Packers lead the series 61-53 to with those two ties. They are tied at 1-1 one one in the postseason, and I, for one, Hope the Packers never see the Vikings in the postseason again, because I just don't know if I could if I could handle that again. What is your favorite Packers Vikings moment? For me, it's probably when the Vikings hosted the Packers for the pi- final time at uh, the Metrodome, and the Packers scored on all but two possessions, both possessions that ended the half. They took over with four seconds left in the first half, did not manage to score there. And then they took over with like a minute and a half left and they just kneeled out the clock in the second half because they were up 44 to 31. That was a fun game. Went there with Gary, my Packers or Power Sweep colleague. That's one of my favorite memories. What is yours? I'd love to hear it. Let's talk a little bit of a little bit about take your eye off the ball. We're getting right down to the end here. And this is a topic that maybe Pat Kerwin, I think, might have wanted to leave out of this book. Because while there is some good stuff, it's what he doesn't include that I think undermines this chapter. All about injuries. First, he rightly points out that making the right call on injuries is a huge deal. He uses the example of Drew Brees not signing with the Miami Dolphins. 
as exhibit A of why it's so tough to make the right call because it looked like Drew Brees might have been in some trouble uh, having that shoulder surgery right before he hit free agency. The Dolphins ultimately decide to pass, go with Dante Culpepper instead, and Drew Brees ends up in New Orleans. The rest is history. For a similar example, how about one Packers fans should know about? Quoting now an ESPN article from 2005, Brett Favre has a chronic hip condition that almost prevented him from being traded to the Green Bay Packers 13 years ago, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported Wednesday. Favre and former former Packers general manager Ron Wolf said Tuesday at training camp that the three-time NFL MVP was diagnosed in 1992 with a vascular necrosis, a condition that can lead to hip replacement surgery. It's a lack of blood supply to the socket, Favre told the newspaper. To this day, it bothers me from time to time, but before the draft, I did MRIs for Atlanta, I did MRIs for Seattle, went through all kinds of evaluations at the Combine. A lot of teams were apprehensive because of that, end quote. Favre said he hurt the hip in the East-West Shrine game. The condition is the same as the one that afflicted former football and baseball star Bo Jackson. The article goes on to say that the Packers team doctor was going suggested they flunk Favre on the physical that they needed to complete the trade with the Atlanta Falcons, and that Ron Wolf went and got a second opinion from Packers team trainer Pat McKenzie. That is not what happened. Uh, Ron Wolf famously told them to complete the deal no matter what. They did. Packers won that deal, and Brett Favre went on to have the career that he's had. Kerwin writes pretty well, I think, about the concussion issue, too. Uh, points uh, out a lot of good stuff about football being inherently dangerous and also that football players do not really care about it at all. This quote really stood out to me, quote, football players are like bank robbers. No one goes out to rob a bank thinking, I'm going to get caught today. They don't willingly willingly ignore the risks. They just don't consider them at all, end quote. I think that's a pretty good way of looking at it. Uh, Football players are aware of concussions, but they don't consider them at all for the most part. There's a few outspoken people that do think about it. More power to them. If, if that's something that factors into your decision to play football or not, um, go for it. But if it, if it doesn't bother you, if, you, if, you're, accept, or if you're comfortable with the risk, I, I think that's fine too. And I don't think it makes you a bad person for watching, watching football if you, if you accept the risk that these players have, have thought about and decide it doesn't bother them all that much either. He also had some really good stuff to say about being unable to legislate that sort of violence or risk out of the game, and that's something the NFL has increasingly tried to do, and I just think that's a losing battle. There's only so much that you can do to make this game safer. It's an inherently dangerous game. As Vince Lombardi said, it's a collision sport. There are going to be con- collisions, and people are going to get hurt in those collisions. You really just have to decide whether you're you're okay with that. I think a lot of these guys are. This chapter suffers, though, for what he leaves out. There's a big unspoken issue that Kerwin doesn't touch on hardly at all as it pertains to NFL injuries. Can you think of what it might be? Drugs. They exist in the NFL. And however much you think they exist, they definitely exist even more. I've done quite a bit of research on this. Did a significant term paper on performance-enhancing drug use among high school athletes at one point. It's higher than you might think there, too. But I did a lot of research about how performance-enhancing drugs affect professional sports, 
And the NFL is just an abyss as far as drugs and drug use. Not just drug, not just performance-enhancing drugs, but painkillers, stimulants, anything you can think of. It's out there. And guys are using it. And the further you dig, the more that you realize it's just a bottomless pit. It just goes down and down and down and there's really no bottom. Because the stakes are just so high. Look at that Drew Brees situation. The difference between him continuing his career and being out of a job is the opinion of one doctor or a couple doctors and one coach or a couple coaches who watch him at a couple workouts. Hundreds of millions of dollars are on the line for one guy. You think he wouldn't do whatever it took to make sure he performs well? And I'm just using Drew Brees as an example because it's one we talked about. I don't want to imply that he, he uses steroids or has used steroids or, or any other sort of performance-enhancing drug or painkiller or what have you. But just as, as sort of a case study for why anyone would consider doing this, the stakes are so incredibly high. You could be one play away from having your career end or winning a Super Bowl. The pressure is there. And if you've got a way around the testing or whatever, at what point do you just become a sucker for not using it? I think it was ESPN's J.A. Adonde that had a really, really good example that changed kind of the way I thought about this. He used this um, example as a way of kind of recontextualizing baseball's steroid problems in the 90s. He said when he was going to school growing up, they would have spelling tests once a week or however often it was. But during those spelling tests, and I'm not sure really how this works with spelling, but um, they would get the list of words that they would need to spell or, or have their whatever test they were having, maybe it was spelling or something else, but they would have these the answers or the questions that they needed to solve and the test would or the the teacher would leave the room and on the teacher's desk they would leave the answer key i don't know what the teacher was doing here if there was some point that they were trying to prove or not but it became common practice for kids to either fill out their answers and then go check against the key or just go and copy their answers from the key directly and Adande said, at a certain point, you just became the sucker for not doing it. Is that cheating? Maybe, maybe not. It fits probably the dictionary definition of cheating. But if everybody else is doing it and you know you're not going to get caught, don't you just become an idiot for not doing it? I think there's a lot of that going on in the NFL and professional sports in general too. But the bottom line is this, it's out there. People are using these drugs. And if they can get around the NFL's marijuana testing policy prior to the changes that went into effect this offseason, they can get around the other ones too. And you better believe that they are doing everything they can because, again, the stakes are just so high. If you're looking at the difference between playing the absolute correct way 
and potentially making millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, becoming a nationally recognized, internationally recognized star athlete, being out of a job in a couple seasons, one season, a couple of games. It's got to at least cross your mind, right? You at least think about it. And I think that's understandable. That doesn't make it right, but it is understandable. And it is out there. So I've got for you on this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Hope you like it enough to share it with somebody else because that's one of the best ways you can support this podcast. We're going to be talking about more ways that you can support us in an episode very soon, but I want to put together some additional content about that first before we get that far. But in the meantime, just go ahead and share this with somebody you think might benefit from it because that is how we are going to get more people into this conversation about the Packers and ultimately how we're going to help more people become smarter Packers fans. Because as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.